Bible-believing Christians acknowledge that the ultimate reason why man exists is for the glory of God. As God created us in His own image to shine forth His glory to the whole watching world, His character to the world. And as the Catechism question affirms, living for God's glory enjoys, or sorry, involves our enjoyment of Him. Praise God. So there you have ultimate goal, and then you'll also there you have our satisfaction. Our passage this morning addresses the chief end of man. To glorify God, specifically by living a life worthy of God. That, that's our main tagline from this morning's sermon, if you're taking notes. Uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God, specifically by living a life worthy of the Lord. So go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. Paul the Apostle wrote this letter, and he wrote it from prison around 60 A.D., And he had written it to a new church that had sprung up. A man from their city had heard the gospel from Paul, possibly from the city of Ephesus, 75 miles uh, west of Coloss. And that man is converted. He brings the gospel back to the city of Coloss, preaches it, shares it with them. And there you have the sort of birth of this little church. And so we have the letter to the Colossians written by Paul to this new church here. In studying the passage, uh, I was reminded again of how cool it is that we actually have a letter from the Apostle Paul. And we have multiple letters. But not only that, we actually have prayers from the Apostle Paul. So if anybody's wanting to grow in their prayer life, I mean, isn't it cool that we have this man charged with laying the foundation of the church? We have his very prayer for certain Christians and for the church. That's incredibly encouraging here. If you want to know what, what do I be praying about, you know, you want to take our cues from Paul the Apostle. Uh, I'd love to, to actually preach a topic, uh, a topical series on prayer, and this would be a very natural text to look at. Um, but uh, in terms of the push of the passage, it's actually, the point isn't, well, let's learn how to pray, though that would be a fine thing to study. We're not going to be studying that. We're just going to be focusing on the main point of this particular passage, as Paul prays. Uh, I'll go ahead and read Colossians 9 to 14. Actually, we'll go ahead and start at at, uh, verse 3, and we'll go to 14. So that way we get the context of this opening here, this thanksgiving and then this prayer. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day we heard it. You heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So from our passage today, we not only see that man's chief end is to glorify God by living a life worthy of the Lord, we also see how that's accomplished. So if we want to do this, the question is, what do we need to actually do this? And then we see what this life consists of. Okay, so you're taking notes, that's the breakdown there. Number one, that the Christian's life goal is living a life worthy of God. Point number two, how this is accomplished. And then number three, what this life consists of. What does it actually look like? Let's look first at uh, the Christian's life goal is to live a life worthy of Christ. The goal here is actually the climax of Paul's prayer. It's like the big picture reason for why he's even praying for them in the first place. If you go ahead and look there at the text. He tells them, there in nine, this, is, this is how we pray for you. That you will be filled with the knowledge of his will. Then he tells them why. This is the big reason here. So as to, or so that you would, walk worthy of the Lord. So that's like the big picture idea here of the prayer. The Christian is to glorify God by walking worthy of him. Specifically, he says there, by pleasing God. So just as a child desires to please his or her parent, so the Christian desires to please the Father in heaven. And many of us understand the dynamic involved of living a life worthy of something. Uh, you know, many of us come from, the, the vast majority of the world is a shame-based culture, a shame and honor-based culture. Um, and a lot of us know what this looks like. So we know the dynamic involved of walking worthy of something. Being worthy of something. So a, a kind of wrong-headed idea, you can think of, let's say, the gang member. Trying to live up to what the gang stands for. And so that person, the new recruit, wants to live a life worthy, if that were even possible or legitimate, worthy of this so-called gang. And that, that person knows that his or her actions reflect you know, the purpose of the gang. You think about families, right? Families have expectations. If you've ever felt like a black sheep in your own family, you probably feel like you aren't meeting certain expectations. Whether those expectations are put on yourself by yourself or by your parents, right there you're trying to live a life worthy of your family's name. Or on the flip side, if you make sure that another person knows that they are the black sheep of a family, you're operating off of your own expectations for, for them. Right? And even in the fact that you're making them know, you're letting them know that they are the black sheep, you're putting on them certain expectations. And here this dynamic is at play. Um, and this dynamic of walking worthy of something, the something has certain identity markers. Right? So the family has certain identity markers. Maybe uh, you know, for 18 generations, people have been missionaries. And so, for you to live up to the, the, the name of the family, you too must become a missionary. You know, that would be a so-called identity mark. I'm not saying that's legitimate, but that's how we understand this dynamic involved. Um, I remember uh, this dynamic, you know, of wanting to live up to something. And I knew it from an early age. Of course, it was present at my, in my family, but I'm not going to talk about the family dynamic. I remember joining the Michael Jordan fan club. And there, you know, the, 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 the group is the Michael Jordan fan club, and I'm taking part in it. So somehow I convinced my parents to give me like a $25 check. 
I go join Michael Jordan's fan club, and they sent me catalogs, of course, so I can go buy some things, and they can make money. Um, but they also gave me this card, and I had a picture of the Air Jordan, you know, in red. I think the card was white. And on it, you know, member of the Michael Jordan fan club, and I could sign it. And I really wanted to sign it, because I wanted to be a card-carrying member of the Michael Jordan fan club. I signed there on the dotted line and stuck it in my wallet, if I even had a wallet. And uh, I wanted to live worthy of the name. So we understand that there are expectations on both parties here in wanting to live a life worthy. And in this case, Paul prays that the Christians would live up to the expectations of Christ himself. That they would embrace the expectation that God has on his children of living a life worthy of his name or of the Lord. Those things are, uh, the same. Those things are synonymous. So you Christian, if you claim Christ, you are to live a life worthy of his name. And that is a tall order for every aspect of your life to be lived worthy of God, worthy of Jesus. Where he could come down and live in the various sections of the rooms of our lives and find that, yes, this is actually fitting for me. For us to consider this, this uh, means we have to consider that we wear, or what it means for us to wear the team Christian jersey, so to speak. But not only that, but for that jersey to be on us all the time. Whether we show up here on Sunday morning, or whether we are sitting in front of the computer at 2 a.m. in the morning. At all times! God's people wear this team Christian jersey, so to speak. Uh, now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, it's easy to read this prayer. You know, Paul's casting here this ultimate life vision. It's easy to read this prayer and assume that uh, living a life worthy of the Lord means that somehow the way we live earns us, earns us a spot on the team. The way we live earns us a spot on the team. Uh, or basically... The way we live is what qualifies us for salvation. But that's actually not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about what qualifies the sinner for salvation in this text. He's simply talking about the goal of those already saved. Right? He's praying for people who already confess Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I pray you, I pray for you that you would live a life worthy of him. So please know that the Bible teaches that. Uh, sinners are saved only by the grace of God, as we've already sung here this morning. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation or add to our salvation. Christ has already done everything. So we got in order to understand the passage, we have to, to uh, wrestle with, well, what does it mean for us to live a life worthy of His name, but yet at the same time having Him already done everything so that we would already be saved? But this is the truth. Christ, the Son of God, takes on flesh for sinners. He becomes the God-man to save men. Christ lives a perfect life for sinners. And that's actually required, if anybody would be saved, to live a perfect life, to obey the law. Jesus knows that we can't do it, so he does it for us. Jesus dies on the cross for sinners. Bearing the punishment and the wrath that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. Jesus gets up from the dead for sinners, showing everyone, God showing everyone, that his payment has been made. We don't have to die for our sins 
Instead, Jesus Christ dies in our stead as our substitute. So the only thing for man to do here is to turn from their sins and believe on Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's not talking about what qualifies you for salvation. What qualifies you is what Jesus has already done. That's why he says to you, repent and believe and you will be saved. So this is not salvation by works here. When he says, I pray that you all would live a life worthy of God. So Christians, is living a life worthy of Christ pleasing him? Is this your goal, your life goal, your motto? Of course, none of us will be perfect in this life, and God knows it. So living a life worthy of Christ, according to Christ, is not living a perfect life. That's not his expectation on you, though he does call us towards it. Here, he calls us, a living, living a life worthy of Christ means living a repentant life. A life that clings to Jesus, as we know that he himself is making us perfect, and that perfection will take place in heaven. And will never be completed here on this earth. But I pray that we're all able to say that, that this goal here that Paul prays for, that that goal is our goal. But then of course we need to grow in this. So I pray too that we would be, uh, we would be confessing our need to grow in this aspect. And really be able to look at all of our lives, or every aspect of our lives and say, yes, we need to submit everything to him and his purposes, then we will live, learn to live a life worthy of his name. Wouldn't that be awesome? If we were to get to a point where we strategize about the various aspects of our life for him, as much as we strategize about these various aspects of our lives for ourselves. Right? We understand what it looks like to strategize about every aspect of our life. And so right now, what's taking up uh, a, a decent amount of thought, space in my own head is, you know, what we're doing to the house that we purchased. So me, my father, we purchased this house. Uh, and so we're working through the renovation of it. And we're strategizing, on, oh my goodness, and some of it, some of it is, is uh, joyful strategizing, some of it isn't. You know, flipping through all the various types of toilet bar, I mean, toilet paper holders, trying to figure out which ones we want. That's, that, to some degree, is a strategy, right? We're strategizing about how we want the house to look like. About the kinds of hospitality we want to have, the different spaces involved. We strategize about our careers. We strategize about our education. What should we major in? What should we go on and get a master's degree in? We strategize about our children. How many hours have my parents put into strategizing about me to really make sure and see that I graduate college back in the day? We strategize about our health. Trying to figure out, do, do research on what kind of vitamins should I take? What kind of glasses should I buy? How are my eyeballs going to be? How am I going to reduce my anxiety? We strategize about our relationships. Good ones. Difficult ones. We even strategize about so-called pleasure. I mean, how many of you guys are banking on a so-called worldly, uh, a so-called promise of pleasure that the world holds out to us? And even in our sin, we go to great lengths to strategize about how we might not be found out. We strategize about legitimate pleasure. Where am I going to eat today? What kind of five-star restaurant am I going to dine at? We strategize about our comfort, our security, our material grade. Again, all of it, we strategize 
using a lot of energy, aiming for success, aiming to do with these things what we want, unfortunately, for ourselves. How awesome would it be for us to be praying these very things and see the Lord working and fulfilling this in us so that we would take all that effort that we use to strategize about ourselves and strategize about bringing glory to God in all of those aspects. Paul says here, every aspect of my life ought to be lived in a manner worthy of the Lord. So what Christ wants for my house, eventually I would want for my house. What Christ desires of me in my career, whether you are a student, a father, whether you are healthy, whether you are sick, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you are with children or without children, employed or unemployed or retired, how awesome would it be for us to get to the point where, where what Jesus wants for us, we want for ourselves. And we're offering them all up, worthy of Him. You know what I think keeps us from this? Living a life worthy of God. So oftentimes we just don't know what God wants for us, right? We just don't know. Now of course there could just be straight up rebellion, that's certainly one reason why we don't. But oftentimes we just simply don't know. And this brings us to point number two. If we are to live a life worthy of the Lord, how can this be accomplished? Again, this is no small task. How can this be accomplished? This is actually the first thing that Paul prays for. Look there at your text in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking, so here's a simple, simple ex explanation to them, a further explanation of what they ask or pray for. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will or God's will. And this is really uplifting language. I mean, how would you guys like to be prayed for, for by a dude who's never even met you? He hears of your faith and then he already begins praying for them here. From the first day that we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what is it that they're praying? What is it that Paul prays? That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Okay, so ultimate goal, live a life worthy of God, of the Lord. What enables them to do that is knowing the Lord's will. Knowing the Lord's will. You know, today when, when um, many people think of God's will for their lives... What is it that you think of? I think a lot of people boil down God's will for your life or our lives uh, in a simplistic manner, thinking about all the unrevealed things, all the life's biggest questions, supposedly. What major I should declare? Uh, things like, who should I marry? What job I should take? What city I should live in? How many children I should have? Um, it's not that those things are unimportant, those things are certainly part of God's will. Uh, but in all those types of questions, you know, as we obsess over some of these issues, uh, couldn't all those questions reveal a bit of self-centeredness? You know, if, if those are the things that we are obsessing about, maybe all the questions concerning yourself reveals that we've come to think that the chief end of man is really to make much of yourself. And God's will, then, is just the means to your own ends. Really, this would be living a life worthy of what you want, where you are the captain and God is just your life coach. 
And if that's the case, God will only ever be called on as consultant. And he'll never be sought after and obeyed as king. Sometimes we imagine that we're sitting over God and God exists to serve our desires and our purposes. So really the big stuff of God's will is, what major should I choose? What job should I take? Where should I live? What house should I buy? But friends, this is not a consultant. This is the king. So this is God's will as in the Lord's will. The king's will. The one who claims our life. And has claims for every single segment of it. The one who has expectations of me. Right, if, God, if God's will only concerns what job I should have, we've already kind of sidelined God, reducing Him, leaving Him with really only anticipations for you and what you will make of your life, as opposed to magnifying God as Lord who not only has anticipations for your life, but real expectations, legitimate expectations for your life because he's already claimed all of it. This is the king. And to focus on all the unrevealed things, to toss aside the already revealed things, that may reveal a bit of self-centeredness there. Don Carson, in his chapter on this particular passage, as he looks at the prayer of Paul here, He notes the absurdity it is to really obsess about all the unrevealed things while at the same time disposing of the stuff that's already been revealed. And unfortunately he notes that that's the the typical, that's a pattern of today when it comes to seeking after the Lord's will and living a life pleasing to God. We kind of have a skewed understanding of what that is. So that... We are to give all of our lives to God as we work, walk worthy of His name is clear. Paul in his passage has an eye, his eye to total submission to God. Underneath him as a king, not just using him as consultant. So that's why he prays that they will be filled with knowledge. Because informed knowledge of God's will leads to, necessarily leads to, at least according to the Bible, naturally will lead to, necessarily leads to a hearty doing of God's will. God is never just concerned with people knowing His will. He's, the ultimate goal there of knowing leads to automatically doing. So what king is satisfied with his citizens merely knowing his decrees, but not really giving a rip about actually doing them? According to Scripture, knowledge leads to doing. And in a number of places in the Scripture, those two things are virtually synonymous. So uh, Don Carson points us to Psalm 143, verse 10, and he says there, he says, the scripture there says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. So here, to do the will of God is virtually synonymous, he says, with obeying what God has already mandated. And the psalmist here doesn't pray, or doesn't instruct people to find God's will. Because they already have God's will. So if you read Psalm 119, you see very clearly, he has God's will. And there's, there's a thousand different benefits to it. Instead, he tells them to, he, he, he asks God here. The psalmist asks God, teach me to do it. The psalmist already has it. So he prays, teach me to do it. Another passage where knowledge of God's will is, uh, is assumed to lead to the doing of it is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. You can listen. 
Uh, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So in this context, understanding the Lord's will leads to a careful walking and a doing of it. Understanding leads then to a clear doing and a walking. They show themselves to know what it is that is the Lord's will by carefully walking. And as we walk through this letter, it'll become very clear why Paul has to say these things in the first place. It's because other people were saying that they weren't really living the full life. They're basically saying, no, no, you guys, look, I know you have life in Christ, but that's not really the full life. And the stuff... The stuff that he said, no, actually we need to remove some over here, or we need to add to doing over here. So go ahead and look there at 2.18, chapter 2, verse 18. People are coming out with ungodly rules of living. He says there, let no one disqualify you, insisting, so these people are insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up with our reason by his sense... Uh, by his mind. And then look down at 2.21. Here's more unbiblical rules. Do not handle this or that. If you want a full life, don't taste this or that. Don't touch this or that. But in those verses, where does Paul say that those things stem from? These ungodly rules. How they're saying you're lacking, but no, you should actually worship angels. Look there in 2.22. It is according to human precepts and teachings. He says, no, don't listen to those things. And then in 2.8, he says, these things are of human traditions according to the elemental spirits of the world. So there they can listen to the wisdom of the world or in both of those verses in 2.8 and 22, from Christ. So that's really what's there. You can be filled with the knowledge of God's will or you can listen to human traditions that don't. Trust in Jesus. Look there in two, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance. I want you to be assured, he says. I want you to be solid. I want you to be secure of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, already been revealed, Jesus Christ. I want you to be filled with knowledge of Him. Colossians 2.8, look there. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Jesus, not according to Christ. So if you guys remember, the preeminence of Christ over all things is a major topic here in the book of Colossians. And he's getting it, he's holding it out right there. The preeminence of the wisdom of Christ and the knowledge of Christ as opposed to the stuff of the world, human tradition, human thinking. So in this battle of worldly philosophies versus the truth found in God's redemption plan through Christ, we see how necessary it is for Paul to actually say, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God's will, which consists of Spiritual wisdom and understanding. The filling consists of spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now some people actually take this, you could read this as if God wants his people to be filled with the knowledge of his will, 
How does that happen? Well, through some mystical type of spiritual wisdom that's endowed to us that we don't really know anything about. We just get it. But that's not what he's saying here. I think, it's, I think throughout the course of the book, the context says we ought to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which consists of spiritual wisdom and understanding through Jesus Christ, the stuff of Christ. So in 2, 1 to 2, we've already mentioned that knowledge is located in Christ, already revealed. You look at wisdom, look at 128 here. It's not some sort of ethereal wisdom here. This is wisdom comes straight from the Word. 128, Him we proclaim, right? That's Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. The wisdom is Christ. And then look at 316. And you see what the wisdom is associated with here? It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The implication is you can't teach one another in all wisdom apart from the word of Christ, which already dwells within them. So here you see his will. It's in his word. His will is word. You know, for us as a church, what will help us know how to live a life worthy of the Lord is by going back to the fountainhead of wisdom, that is God's word. And from here, we get the commands from God's Word, and then we can also draw necessary implications from God's Word, and then let those things shape our gatherings together, and our life together. Um, so what this looks like practically, let's just take the topic of attendance, right? Uh, what does it look like to be informed with the knowledge of God's will, and then therefore let that inform how we live our lives together? You know, it's really clear that Christians are to gather on the Lord's Day, that's the pattern after Christ's resurrection. You know, pre-Christ's resurrection, people were gathering on the Sabbath. Post-Christ, the day that the Lord rose from the dead, you see the pattern in the New Testament. People are gathering on the resurrection day that is Sunday. Not only that, though, but from the book of Hebrews, we see very clearly that we're not supposed to give up gathering together. So that's a command. It says, don't give up gathering together. So no problem. We can say, look, God calls us to gather together. When we disregard that, actually, we're in sin. Right? That's really clear. We want to hold that out. No problem. But what do we think about something like our formal small group ministries? What does God think about our formal small group ministries? You know, those that are together at 7, 8 p.m., whichever, whatever, on whatever day, twice a month. In short, He doesn't think anything about those things, at least when it comes to a clear command out of Scripture. Now, to be clear, he says a lot about what we want and try to do in small groups, like evangelism, learning about it, like prayer, like Bible reading, like fellowship. Right? God says tons of stuff about that. But there's no evidence of a formal small group ministry in Scripture. Therefore, I need to be careful about how I speak about them. And we need to be careful about how I speak about them. Um, because we want to be informed in our corporate life through God's Word. We want to know His will. So imagine this. If I spoke about small groups and I pushed them all the time, and we championed their leaders, and we even said that godly people go to small groups, I'd suddenly redefine the definition of godliness according to Scripture, wouldn't I? Uh, and I ought never redefine something that God has already defined for us. And then imagine if we push small groups like that as part of the very definition of godliness, 
You know how easy it is then to, to lead to a legalistic culture? I mean, what would you guys all... Let's say we adopted this understanding that only the godly go to small groups. Uh, what would you all think about something, someone who has an evening job? Someone who works late? What do we make of the person who feels unsafe driving at nighttime? Well, we would say, oh, that person must be doubly ungodly. I mean, not only does they, do they miss small groups, they idolize work. So you see how it works in the congregation... Uh, now, this isn't a worldly philosophy that's battling with the knowledge of God. It's more like a man-made thing here that could be coming from the leadership that could be redefining God's will for our lives. But we want everything to come from the Bible. Either a clear command or a good and necessary implication of a biblical text. This is how we live a life worthy of God. We're bound by these things. And people throughout history have relied on this stuff. Well, how do we organize our lives together or live our own life worthy of the Lord? Clear command of Scripture, good and necessary implication thereof. So that's one way that we can live a life, or the main way that we live a life worthy of the Lord, by knowing God's will for our lives in His Word. But from the passage, there's another way uh, that living a life worthy of the Lord can be accomplished. It's actually by having other people pray for us. And that is what's going on here, right? Paul hears about their faith, he prays for them, and then he writes this prayer report for them. Actually praying as he's writing. He's praying that God would not only, uh, that he, to giving thanks that he not only saved them, but then praying that he would continue to bear great fruit. And we see Paul's priorities in this prayer. So again, if you're wanting to grow in your prayer life, just take his priorities and make them your own. Just take them and make them your own. And you could literally just pray this very same prayer for other people here in the church. If you're wondering what you should pray about me for, why don't you pray that I'll be filled with the knowledge of will, of God's will, so that I might live a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. If you're wondering what you should pray for one another, pray that that would actually take place. You can just take what Paul prays and make them your own. Now, some people might balk, actually, at such a suggestion. And they might say, you know, oh, well, that kind of prayer is not heartfelt because that prayer is not in your own words. Well, what do we make of the Lord's Prayer? Who teaches us what to pray? Should we never pray the Lord's Prayer? It doesn't make sense to say that we should never pray that prayer because simply because it was written down. I mean, they're still legitimate. They're still legitimate prayers. Other people might balk up the suggestion because they might say, oh, well, this prayer, a, a heartfelt prayer is only a spontaneous prayer. Right? And if it's not spontaneous, then the Spirit's not in it. But we don't want to say that either. I mean, was the Spirit not in this prayer? In the book of Colossians? Should, should the Colossian Christians sort of toss this part of the letter saying, oh, Paul wrote this down. Uh, and so therefore the Spirit's not in it, it's not spontaneous when I read it, it's not genuine. No, we don't want to say that. But we can, we can let the Apostle Paul's prayers inform our prayers for one another. And the best way to do it is just to study Paul's prayers. Uh, so if you look at the beginning of most of his letters, he will have there a thanksgiving and a prayer. Uh, you can do that with your friends, your roommates, your spouse, your children, just take the beginning of some uh, some letter of Paul's and just read that right before dinner and then make that your prayer for one another. A great book to, to learn more about this is called A Call to Spiritual Reformation by Don Carson. A Call
Call to Spiritual Reformation by Don Carson. And you can talk about, uh, you can talk to Paul and Danny Chung because they're reading through it. You can ask them about the contents of that book. Fantastic book. So in summary, we've seen that we are to live a life worthy of the Lord. That's the big goal. How is this accomplished? Mainly through knowing the Lord's will and also by praying for one another. But what does this godly life consist of? This brings us to point number three. What does this life consist of? Now, in the rest of the passage, the rest of the prayer, Paul's basically laying down the tracks that he's going to ride on throughout the rest of the prayer. So you kind of have an introduction to the rest of the rest of the letter just through his prayer. So the theme that he brings up here, he's going to return to later on. And so we're going to have time to dive deeper into all of these. So we're just going to address these issues in brief. Um, keep in mind here, the, this life that's described, Carson says that this is not an exhaustive list, but merely a typical list. So in the prayer, to walk, I pray that you would walk, is the driving verb. What that looks like, there are four different things that he describes uh, here to mark this life. First is bearing fruit. Second is increasing in knowledge. Third is being strengthened for the race. Four is giving thanks. Let's just go ahead and read that. Uh, starting in verse 10, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, number one, bearing fruit in every good work. And number two, increasing in the knowledge of God. Number three, he prays that they would be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And then number four, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So let's take the first two, bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge. Um, it's interesting, it's important to note that what he prays for here in this passage, he's already thanked God for in verse 6. So if you look there in verse 6, he's talking about the gospel. The gospel has already come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. Bearing fruit and growing, or increasing, is the exact, exact same word there, translated growing and then increasing. So he doesn't merely acknowledge that those things take place and then say, okay, I don't have to worry about those things. He actually sees it taking place. The gospel is bearing fruit in their lives. The gospel is increasing as the knowledge of God comes to people. So he doesn't address it and then move on and ditch it. He actually camps out on it. What he sees present already going on in the Colossian church, he prays that God would continue to do these things. I pray that you would bear fruit. The book of Ephesians says that God has uh, prepared good works for us in advance to do. So Paul's praying that they would bear fruit in every aspect of their lives. And then he says that they would be increasing in the knowledge of God. So coming to know God and who He is, and then living a life accordingly. So a question for you. Are you fruity? Is your faith anchored in Christ and in His supremacy so that your faith is unshakable because you have an unshakable Savior. So bearing lots of fruit, knowing that you have an unshakable Savior. So your faith itself is unshakable. I mean, we, just like the Colossian Christians, need to be strengthened. <coughs> which is the 
thing that uh, he brings up here. So the next aspect that living a life worthy of the Lord consists of being strengthened. So first is bearing fruit, second is increasing in the knowledge of God. So the knowledge of God as Savior, who He is, His redemption plan, His will for our lives. Third thing is being strengthened for perseverance. The idea is clear here. Here he just prays that they would continue on in the Christian faith. The thing that strengthens is God's power. Keep in mind here, it's the worldly philosophies versus the knowledge of God. And if you want to remain rooted in the knowledge of God, bearing fruit, he prays that God himself, according to his power, would strengthen them for all endurance and patience with joy. So this here is a joy-filled, God-empowered faith. The last thing he says that this life is to be marked by is by a thanksgiving. So he says, bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, strengthened for joy, filled perseverance. And then lastly, it's thankful to God. He says, giving thanks to the Father, particularly for what he's done for his people. In this verse, if you noticed, Paul comes actually to full circle. In verse, in verse 3, he thanked God for what he was doing. He gave thanks. And then here, he prays that they too would give thanks. So in verse 3, he refers to that the gospel arrived, they embraced it, they believed it. And then here, he encourages them to give thanks for what God has already done through Christ. Uh, did you guys notice that? Here, these are all past tense verbs. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us already to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have present redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he comes full circle and wanting to encourage and strengthen the Colossian Christians' faith as they are really wondering, okay, do I have do I have a life of fullness in Jesus Christ or not? Should I need do I need to worship angels and live a life of asceticism? Or do I have the real thing? And so Paul comes full circle. He thanks God in the beginning for what God has done in bringing the gospel to their lives. And then over here, he wants them to thank God of what Christ has already done on the cross. So if you guys right now are wondering, okay, is this Christian life really what I want? Battling the, the, your flesh, evaluating this Christian life and recognition that it is hard sometimes. He says, look, God has qualified you already. So if, any, if there's any legalistic impulse in you that, that says, I need to live a life worthy of the Lord in order that I might be saved, or in order to earn my salvation, you look here, you think, what? God has qualified us. To share in the inheritance. And there he's drawing from Old Testament language, isn't it? Israel didn't do anything to earn the promises. God just gave them the promises. God is the one who qualified them. And this affects how we walk, right? It frees us up from living a life. It frees us up from living a life worthy of his name as if we earn the inheritance. And then it empowers us to live out our lives in gratitude for his grace. Because he's the one who's qualified us. We don't live to earn, we live to glorify our gracious God. The next two things, they go together. It says that he has delivered us out of the domain of darkness. That's drawing us out of the bad stuff. And then he fits us for light. 
after he draws us out of the kingdom of darkness. I mean, these are powerful words here. This is deliverance language, uh, freedom from slavery language, freedom from oppression language. And what's amazing, according to the biblical witness, is that apart from the Spirit of God, we don't even realize we are in chains in our sin. But yet God is the one who delivers us. By tasting the very darkness in Christ. By subjecting him, his very own self to the world of darkness and even going down into its domain where death and sin reign and rule. In order that he might break the chains of it. Free us from the tyranny of darkness. And then when he frees us, he fits us for light. As God shines into the darkness, knowing that he will eventually on the cross destroy it in his resurrection as well. In his resurrection, he frees us and fits us to his heavenly light. That's what it, that's what it means there, when he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. I mean, what marks this kingdom is not sin, but righteousness and purity. And so in calling the Colossian Christians to live a life worthy of this Lord, he wants them to live a life worthy of this Christ. They have a new Lord. No longer are they enslaved to sin. They have a new identity. No longer of the flesh, but of the Spirit. They have a new Lord. No longer sin and Satan, but Christ the Lord. And you look there in verse 14. It's beautiful climax here. Great assurance. He has done all these things. He has delivered us. He has transferred us and secured us into that kingdom where no one can assail the great king. And then he says, in whom, let me be clear, in whom, that is Jesus, we have, we possess it in the present. Redemption. The forgiveness of sins. In Him, we possess it now. It's not after you live a life of asceticism. It's not after you go and worship angels. It's not after you follow, do not touch, taste, or hold these things. He says you already have everything you need in Jesus. And that's the wisdom here that He holds out to them. And He's praying. He's pleading with God that they would continue to know and be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they would please Him, living a life worthy of Him. That's a prayer for Christians who are struggling and a prayer that I hope we would adopt for ourselves and we would pray for one another. So whether you are a Christian already or whether you are exploring Christianity, I mean, don't you learn a ton about the stuff of Christianity from this prayer? It's what he's asking his very God to do for his people. And you learn so much here. The purpose of life. To live a life worthy of this Jesus. To glorify him. How is this accomplished? Not by your own will. Or by the will of the world. But by God's own will. Through his word. And what is a Christian life supposed to look like? It's fruit bearing. Doing what Jesus wants us to do. It's increasing in the knowledge of God, which he's already telling us who this God is, this great qualifier, deliverer, transfer. Fruit-bearing, increasing in the knowledge of God. Um, it's, our lives are supposed to be strengthened for joyful perseverance. And lastly, we're supposed to be giving thanks to God. Why is that? Because we possess redemption and forgiveness of sins. I mean, there you really see the heart of Christianity, don't you? Redemption, that is the buying back and the forgiveness of sins that we have only through the cross of Christ. That's where salvation is, has, or is found. 
right standing with God, forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family, perseverance, security of our salvation, all of that found in what Christ has done on the cross. So an effort to encourage one another to persevere in our faith, let's make these the stuff of Paul's prayer our prayers for one another. I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll turn towards the celebration of the Lord's Supper, where actually we get the chance to thank God for what He's done on the cross. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we praise You as our qualifier. We thank You, Lord, that what gets us into salvation is not anything that we do because I'm sure even already today we are guilty of some sort of sin but Lord we thank you that you have qualified us despite our sin that you look upon the fantastic securing work of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for sins and you look on us as if we wear his righteous robes Father, we pray that truly for us as a church and us as individuals that we would find nothing greater than to live a life worthy of the Lord. Lord, we recognize that you have expectations on us, but Lord, we too recognize that you are the one who fills us with your knowledge so that we would be enabled to live this life. You're the one who gives us your spirit so that we might know you more and that we might live this life worthy of Christ. And you're the one who forgives. And as we walk this life in dependence upon that forgiveness... We say to everybody else that you are the one who qualifies us. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would empower us to walk a life worthy of your name. In your name we pray. Amen.